This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation. It went into effect today in Europe already. Google, Facebook, and the social media giants WhatsApp and Instagram facing four complaints under the new law. Let's get some thoughts on this new world order. Christina Cabela is the newly appointed and first ever data protection officer over at IBM, based in Milan, and she joins us from our bureau, our Bloomberg News Bureau in London. Christina, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, Tell us about what IBM has been doing to get ready for the GDPR, which takes a much tougher look at the use of consumer data and privacy issues, certainly uh, in the European Union region. Sure. IBM has, uh, first of all, implemented the long journey to uh, readiness uh, of GDPR. It was more than two years that the entire company throughout the globe worked with efforts to prepare the transformation for compliance to GDPR. It has been decided on purpose to deploy this program globally because we trusted the importance of uh, um, transforming the company for the future of uh, innovation and the enhancement of privacy and security that GDPR was giving. We always uh, consider the GDPR more than a challenge and an, as an opportunity. We, we wanted to ensure that as a company we were able not only to prepare compliance internally but also being ready for supporting our clients in their GDPR. Are you ready? Journey. Are you guys ready? Uh, we are committed 100% to GDPR, and it is my role as GPO to ensure that we are ready and uh, to test and control that all, every single angle of IBM is in terms of processes and in terms of offerings and products ready. And, and Christina, tell us about your clients then, because there has been a lot of speculation as to who is really ready for this and, and who's not. As you talk to, to folks that IBM works with, what, what's the state of compliance now? Well, the state of compliance is confirmed by many, many studies, uh, of course, uh, and, and the reality is that they confirm that more or less 30, 35% of the companies may have reached uh, a good uh, status of, of compliance. Wow, only 30 or 35% are compliant. Yeah, but that is also a good sign uh, and in the same studies and surveys, which is that uh, at least the uh, 60% of companies are really looking at GDPR as a great opportunity for transforming themselves. So on one side, compliance is possibly slow. There may be many reasons for that, the complexity and uh, uh, some, some late, let's say, awakening on, on the importance of doing it and, and also the difficulty of, of, of complying. For those companies that were not preparing themselves with good understanding of their data, good processing for managing and, and scanning the data in the company. So the journey to readiness is a bit longer for mm. those who were not yet well prepared. I got to ask you, though, I mean... It's 
it's a it's a different world now, Christina. Correct. I mean, anybody who's dealing in data and information and has consumers and clients, it's it's a different environment now. Correct. Because of these regulations, you've got to look at things very very dramatically differently. I mean, I mentioned Google, Facebook, and some others already uh, facing lawsuits day one because of this. It is. It is a. It is a great change. It is a milestone in the relationship between, if you like, technology and, and society, uh, and it is, uh, for sure, changing um, the way. Uh, on one side, individuals were used to to manage their data, so it's giving individuals more control on their data. On the other side, it's giving through the accountability and, of course, all the compliance obligation. It's giving to company a duty and, and, and a requirement of more discipline in the way they, they manage their data. So it is, in a sense, um, calling for more transparency, more responsibility, mm-hmm. and the re- building of the trust relationship between the individuals who owns the data and the companies who may use the data. Well, Christina, let, let's go a little deeper on that point, because as a consumer, all the, I've getting, been getting all these emails, all, all of us across <laughs> yes. the newsroom are getting all these emails, uh, which, which candidly feels pretty good. What is the benefit for a company in all this? How, how are you selling this in a way that, it, that it's a positive? About 45 seconds left. Well, sure. Uh, we, the, the positive for company is that by ensuring compliance to GDPR, GDPR is really an accelerator, if you like, of uh, the um, innovation into into a digital transformation. So it's imposing company mm-hmm. more more accuracy in the way the data are used and, in, and more understanding of where the data are used. And this will help them understanding what data they really need. Because in the right. past years, the reality is that data were collected and Sometimes companies are not even um, well aware of what was the need for those data. So all in all, it mm. will help GDPR minimizing the quantity of data. Right, filtering it out too. Because I yes. often do wonder, Steph, you know, if the next thing is companies are going to be paying we consumers right. for our information because it's awfully val- valuable. Hey, Christina, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Christina Cabela, Data Protection Officer at IBM, based in Milan, but joining us uh, in our Bloomberg London Bureau on this Friday. Big, big money. In fact, $539 million to be exact. It's a multi-million dollar win for Apple. Here to explain, Matt Larson, litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Hey, Matt, so set the stage here. This is litigation that's been going on for years between Apple and Samsung. I love it. In In the tech world, I feel like there's all these companies that work together and then they fight together in court. But set the stage for us. Yeah, exactly. Work together, fight together. Um, it all depends on the uh, on the business unit and day of the week. So this battle goes back to um, the early days of the smartphone wars. Uh, these are devices. Uh, the Galaxy 2 is at issue in this case. Uh, I think we're a little bit beyond that now in, in terms of products. But uh, the, the litigation focuses on design elements of the original iPhone. So when you think about uh, where the smartphone industry was or or wasn't, you know, seven years ago, uh, we didn't have kind of the ubiquitous square screen uh, battle that we have going on now. Those were pretty unique to the iPhone. Uh, Samsung came out with devices and uh, litigation ensued. So we're still fighting over the 
the amount due to Apple for Samsung infringing those devices. They, uh, there was a court battle in 2012, an initial jury verdict there. It's been up all the way to the Supreme Court, and now we're back in the trial court. So that's procedurally where we are. So, Matt, you, you are a patent attorney yourself, I believe. And so there is a, a bit of gamesmanship here and some strategy that plays in because Samsung appealed, right, and ended up – now, at least for the moment, having to pay more than than the last verdict is that right? You know, it it kind of depends on where you draw the where you draw the lines. Um, the you know the lab the, the first verdict came back in in 2012 for a billion dollars in favor of Apple, uh, 1.05 billion dollars. Uh, the presiding judge slashed that back in in what we call post trial motions. Mm-hmm. Uh, a jury verdict isn't final. Juries don't order payments. They don't solidify the payments. The jury finds facts, and then the judge later issues issues a judgment. And so the jury found a billion dollars. The judge slashed that. There was an additional trial. There were appeals that cut Samsung's exposure on this specific set of patents to about three hundred ninety nine million. And that's really what got appealed. Came back down on trial and it's at 300 million to now 539 million um about five million of that is uncontested so maybe 533 million Mm -hmm. Uh, but overall it's 140 million increase in samsung's exposure that being said it looks like samsung is again going to ask the judge to toss part of this uh part of this award and you know we could see further appeals if the uh, if the companies can't um can't agree to uh, to settle this for some lesser amount. I, I, our colleague David Weston here in New York would say, "We know the lawyers are going to make some money off of this." <laughs> but what is that? You know, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has said there's a principle at stake here, right? To walk us through that, what what are we really fighting over here? Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we've we've said in our notes on this case that the the dispute here is largely policy driven. Um, and when you think about Apple's other ongoing disputes, uh, say with Qualcomm or, you know, it's fending off um, tons of other patent litigation from other parties that just want a slice of their incredibly profitable um, devices, is there's a, a, an ideological dispute is, is the design um, element of a device more important than some of the the guts or kind of the functional elements of the phone. And so Apple has always placed design at the forefront. It's why devices are so intuitive to use. It's it's the cool factor. Uh, design is king when it comes to, to Apple's view of the smartphone industry. And certainly there have been a lot of uh, copycats. You know, the, the designs that Apple came up with are um, are kind of spread throughout the industry now and and have become a little bit um, you know ubiquitous for the smartphone and so that's that's kind of the ideological battle that's going on here is is the design element uh, the most important is that the king when it comes to to selling and manufacturing uh, smartphones so what's significant is it sets a precedent right yeah yeah it sets a precedent uh, it, you know it kind of sends a message. Um, it's, uh, it, it discourages people from trying to, you know, tread too closely to Apple's design, particularly moving forward. You know, when the, when the smartphone war started, the market looked a lot different than it does today. Apple today holds about 14% of handset market share globally by, uh, by unit shipment. And so that's far different than, you know, the, the massive market share they had when the iPhone first came out. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a warning shot to competitors, uh, who would try to continue to rip off the design. 
defines its uh, its kind of staking territory and its laying claim to uh, to design being the value driver for smartphones. Yeah, big sna- like feels like a big slap on the wrist, right? Reminder, folks, it's not just internally but externally what something looks like. Exactly. exactly. Matt Larson, litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Thanks so much. Well, ahead of this Memorial Day weekend, we are delighted to be joined by Karen Ross. She is the president and chief executive officer of Sharp Decisions. They work with veterans to find suitable jobs. And Karen, it's great to be with you. Thank you very much, Jason. It's great to meet you. And so you are working specifically right now on on finding vets jobs in the technology sector. Tell us about the opportunity there. Well, what we do is we bring in veterans. We put them into our boot camp. We employ them. We put them into our boot camp. We train them up in certain skills, and that will include even the skills of cyber today. And then we deploy them to our clients as our employees. We're constantly doing training. We're constantly giving them the mission, the purpose. We're giving them the tools or upgrading their tools as needed. And our clients are finding that they are they're doing fabulous because we deploy them in cohorts as they're deployed in theater. Karen, i got to say, we, you know, what, what I thought was interesting, too, and you've made this argument and put it out there, that veterans are kind of the perfect solution to Silicon Valley's biggest complaint, and that is specifically that complaint about the loss of um, the H-1B visa program or pushback against it. And, of course, that program is what allows U.S. companies to hire foreign workers in kind of what they call specialty occupations. Um, And Silicon Valley says, well, there's just not enough domestic talent. You argue that, yes, indeed, there are. Just take a look at our vets. Some of them have the skills. Some of them just need maybe some of those uh, skills spiffed up. But you say you guys are finding results in working with vets and finding jobs, what, in Silicon Valley or in other, you know, kind of around the nation in terms of tech jobs? They're finding what we're finding, quite frankly, and one of the areas that we've been focusing on for quite some time now is the cyberspace. And what we're finding is who better than to, than to protect your data than those who are protecting your lives, quite frankly. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but the truth is these veterans in the intelligence community have already been there. They're working on tools. They have access to tools that corporate America is saying, Absolutely. They're pulling them in. They're trying to, they are actually, we're seeing more and more veterans that are leaving the government and leaving these, these positions, or even if they're coming out of the military in transition and out of the intelligence community and going into corporate America. The problem is, it, it all depends how it is positioned. So what we're seeing is we will take some of the mid, mid-level people that are coming out of the, the community, and we will train them, and we will put together that six- to eight-week boot camp that will give them the skills that are needed mm-hmm. to get the camaraderie that they're used to. We put them into, as a, they're employed, they're employed by Sharp Decisions. We put them into our clients, whether it is a secure the facility, depending on what they need. Right. And they are so skilled in this that you can't train up in this. They cannot hire kids who want to go into this. They can't hire recent graduates who have the same keen sense of the intelligence community as our veterans. Now, Karen, you know, at a time when the unemployment rate is quite low, you are facing and, and trying to figure out a, a slightly different problem and a potentially more complex problem, which is underemployment. And, and it sounds like finding the really the, the right fit. 
what's the solution there? What are you finding that that's working to to combat that? Well, for me, from my perspective, from the side from Sharp, is we will go to our clients and we will say to them, "Listen, I'm not underemploying them. If they're coming out of the military, they don't understand." They, or, or they may be more keenly aware of it, they don't understand the differential between military and what they pay versus the civilian world. There is a huge delta. Mm. We are, as employers, we are treating them as any civilian, and we are giving them that bump up in delta. It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable to assume that they're going to be happy in a position where they're at a level in the military that coming here, they're at a, a ridiculously low level. Right. I, I, so it could be as much as 20, I, 20%. I, I have to agree that the, it's, I find it very troubling that we do have a lot of Americans that go over to fight overseas and then come back and then they're at a loss for jobs, especially, you know, there are those folks who have skills. I mean, what are you guys finding from the people who come back? I mean, do they have the, the you know, the veterans, do they have the basic skills that work in a tech world? Yes, certain skills. Certain skills. So I, I wouldn't tell you that they're coming back and they're DevOps, or they are developers. Yeah. I'm not telling you that. But I am telling you, if you're going into network, project management, program management. So if uh, many of these companies are employing people both here and internationally, who better than to coordinate mass, multiple teams across the pond? Also remember something else. You've got data. Yeah. And that's the key thing. You've got data. We know about Brexit. We know about GDPR. We know about all these things. You have data that is going across multiple countries. What are you doing? <laughs> there's, there's, yeah. uh, hello? I know. I know. Ooh. Especially when, when, when this can be done. Um, Karen, always good to get uh, an update about uh, what your program is all about and what you're doing. Karen Ross joining us, President and Chief Executive Officer at Sharp Decisions, joining us uh, on the phone from New York City. In Business Week this week, Carol Masser and I were in total agreement that the must-read story is a piece by Alec McGillis, and it concerns Adams County, Ohio. He joins us now on the phone from Baltimore. Alec, great to be with you. Tell us about this story. You invested a lot of time and effort into it. What's happening in Adams County? In Adams County, Ohio, which is one of the poorest counties in Ohio, it's down on the Ohio River just across from Kentucky, about 70 miles southeast of Cincinnati. Um, they're about to lose their biggest employer and biggest taxpayer. It's two coal-fired power plants that are being shut down next week, um, and hundreds of people are going to lose their jobs. And it really brings to the fore this whole question of what you do with places like Adams County that have really kind of lost their original economic rationale. And do you help people move out of them, or do you just try to, or, or do you boost the, the place itself and try to try to bring it back and well, try to pop it up? Alec, that's what I think is interesting, right? Because I think a lot of, I'm thinking of our listeners are saying, well, you know, we've heard this story before, right? An employer comes in, it, it helps an economy and a town and so on, and then it goes away and then that town breaks down. But that's what's significant. You're talking about Americans. They're not moving around like they used to. Exactly. We've, you're right. This, this has happened before in our history. And we've had these big migrations of, of people when, who moved to, to places of greater opportunity in the, in the Dust Bowl, the Great Migration, other, other movements like that. And, but right now, if you look at the numbers, we are much less likely to, to move for opportunity, even though the gaps have really been growing between the places that are struggling and the places that are thriving. 
So even as that, as that you would think it would become more appealing to, to make that move, fewer people are actually doing so. And it's a real, it's a real mystery. And Alec, one of the broad brushes that, that people paint on these types of stories is this is Trump country. This is part of the backdrop for the 2016 election. It's more complicated than that. It feels like, tell us what you found from that political perspective. It's definitely more complicated. Um, this, this, county is not surprisingly a county that supported Trump. It's a county that generally votes, has voted Republican in, in recent elections. But, the, but for starters, uh, a lot of the, um, the, the workers at these plants are not, were not, in fact, Trump voters. The, the, actual, the union that they belong to endorsed Hillary Clinton. Um, the the uh, worker that I focused on most in the piece actually voted third party because he couldn't really abide either candidate. And, and, and the workers are now feeling actually to the extent that they did support Donald Trump, a lot of them are, are uh, not feeling so thrilled about him because they feel like their entreaties for, for help, um, for attention with this, this massive uh, loss coming up have fallen on deaf ears in Washington and, and Columbus. They've just gotten strikingly little uh, help in any of any sort as their county uh, is, is facing this wrenching loss. I'm curious, in, in doing this reporting and seeing what's going on and talking to um, various individuals, you know, what was there any consensus about what we should do? Should we be revitalizing these places that have kind of lost their original economic rationale, or should we make it be make it be easier for people to move around? It was interesting. I think I was hearing on Bloomberg this morning somebody talking about Houston and Texas and how the employment is growing. There is pe- there are people migrating in, and just how vital um, that area has, or that state, if you will, has become. So I'm curious in talking to people, what do they say is the possible answer here? Well, it's a, there's a real debate um, over which is the better approach. The the problem really actually is, is is that the debate is happening at sort of an academic level, but the but at the policy level, it's really almost not happening at all. It's not like there's either mm-hmm. one or the other solution being being proposed. In the case of, of of Adams County, it's basically nothing. There's there's not there's not been any real there's just no real uh, assistance or guidance for people to help them make the move away. And there's also no real uh, contemplation of any real investment in the place to to, to help it um, find a new a new economic life. The the reality that what I found why it actually would will be difficult to get people to make the moves is that you just can't overstate the the power of those those community ties that mm-hmm. even in a place like this that is really struggling that you that you think people would want to get get out of there there are ties to family ties to the landscape right um, and and that's it's, those are those are those are really seem to be what holding what's holding a lot of people it's there. their community they've built right. it they've helped build it up right and exactly. it's hard to leave and as they're staying there Alec what types of jobs are they taking, uh, obviously, in, in some cases, at a lower wage, but, but who is hiring there? It's really, there's two basic different approaches they're taking if they're staying. They're either taking substantial cuts, um, pay cuts. I mean, these, are, these are workers who are making really solid middle-class wages, like $35, $37 an hour working at these plants. This was very skilled work, and there were union jobs. Um, so a lot of them are taking major cuts, you know, down to half that to, you know, to, to work uh, construction or, or that sort of thing, really kind of laboring, laborer-type jobs. And then others are taking jobs that are requiring really long commutes. 
so job, uh, jobs in right. Dayton or Cincinnati uh, or the, uh, the, the nuclear power plant cleanup over in eastern Ohio, um, just uh, really long drives, hour, two hours each way. Um, so it's just, there's no easy answers. All right, going to leave it there. Um, Alec McGillis, thank you so much. Freelance writer at Bloomberg Businessweek. I also loved in this story, just talked about how kind of the American dream is changing. It's not about moving up, but maybe staying close to the family. Check out Bloomberg Businessweek with myself and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg TV throughout the weekend. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, what a week. For this Friday drive to the close with a lot of traffic out there, we turn to Brett Ewing. He's the chief market strategist at First Franklin Financial Services down in Tallahassee, Florida. Brett, great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. So help us make sense of this. We had quite a week in the markets. We heard from the Fed, and, and maybe that's a good place to start. We had the minutes from the last meeting of the Federal Reserve. What, is it, uh, what does it say to you? Actually, we were very pleased with those minutes. Um, we liked that. We felt that the the Fed is actually having some reflection on where they are in the in the interest rate cycle, and we really liked the conversation about uh, willingness to allow potentially inflation to get a little bit above their their two percent mark, and which we thought that they should be doing that the whole time. So, I feel like though. Um We've kind of heard that from the Fed, but what's interesting, too, in the conversations we've had here at Bloomberg, too, Brett, is that idea that I think there was a period this year where we thought we knew exactly what the Fed was going to do for the most part. And now it looks like people are kind of pulling back on their expectations of how many increases and how large those increases might ultimately be. Yeah. And and I think you and I have talked about this before. Mm-hmm. Look at the move in the dollar, though, since those earlier conversations. And look at the effects that the, the rising dollar, if it, if it were to keep this The dollar's got up a lot since, like, mid-April. That's right. And when has their conversation changed? Since really, mm-hmm. you know, over the last 60 days. So they're paying attention to the dollar. They know that the dollar could derail this global expansion if it moves too quick. And, Brett, one of the consistent themes really since the beginning of the year, even going in – going into the end of last year was around the Trump administration's tax plan. We saw that go into effect. How has that played through, though, now that it is law and companies are starting to make some decisions around it? What do you see there? So I think that when you're talking about the economy, we'd look at things like CapEx spending, maybe consumer spending, uh, consumer spending was actually very light. It was actually the first three months back-to-back decline from December through February. And March was a little higher, and April, of course, was a little higher. But really, consumer spending in real retail sales hasn't really um, expanded too much this year. 
CapEx spending, however, was a record first quarter, hmm. and that's good. That's probably an effect from that. But when you dive deeper into the numbers, you will clearly see that it was highly concentrated within really about 10 large tech companies. Mm. And they're the ones spending the money there. So the scope of the CapEx spending has not emerged yet. But we are confident that we will see that pick up further towards the end of the second and into the third and fourth quarter. Hey, one thing I want to ask you about, if I may, is you like um, investment ideas that are connected with the home. You think that that's a smart play. So home housing and all those good things. What specifically, how might you play it? And I'm thinking, how does uh, Mr. Ackman building a a billion dollar stake in in the retailer Lowe's maybe play into that too? Well, I think he's got the wrong play and I think we have the right play. (laughs) What's the uh, the right play in your view? So we like a couple names in in the home area. Uh, we, we believe in Alarm.com, and we've been a big holder there since 2015. And they really have a great moat around their business. They own most of the patents in their space. And they're, they're a real technology company. Not Their name is a big disservice. But other than that, they're growing double big double-digit returns year over year. Um, Based in Virginia? We, I hadn't heard of them. I don't know. They are an yeah. incredible company. Um, as far as remodeling in the home, uh, we think a beneficiary there, we're playing uh, floor and decor, ticker symbol FND. Mm-hmm. And we really like their model and the contractors, um, their showrooms are really picking up pace. They're, they're able to do things that Lowe's and Home Depot are not able to do. And that's why I made the comment about I felt he might be playing it a little bit wrong. Look at that revenue growth. It's like 31% in the most recent quarter over quarter, 40% before that. Yeah, that's A lot of market expansion going to go on there. With the home systems, we're playing Linux. Look, we're 12 years after the big boom, 13 years after the big building boom back in 05 and 06. And how long do a lot of the equipment that was put in the HVAC systems and so we feel there's a big cycle coming on, and uh, we feel that Linux is there to, to pick up that. So, About a minute left, Brett. You know, another notable uh, call you're making appears to be around the gaming industry and following that Supreme Court decision, which really opens up the market dramatically. How do you play that outside of Nevada, it sounds like? Right. So we took a position in a company called El Dorado Resorts back in the first quarter, and we've been trying to get in there but it's run up quite a bit recently obviously with uh but we felt that that is a a good way to get some exposure outside of nevada they've got a pretty decent footprint so and just very briefly trade how much is that on your mind as uh the u.s administration and the chinese continue to circle around them around each other well ultimately we think cooler heads prevail as we've said previously I think we have two business-minded individuals working on this, and uh, ultimately they know it's they they really don't need a trade war. Um, I think they're I right. think they're positioning around the North Korean issue with some of this as well. Nobody benefits from a trade war, many would say. Hey, Brett, thank you so much. Have a nice Memorial Day weekend. Brett Ewing, Chief Market Strategist at First Franklin Financial Services, joining us on the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. 
Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 